yet another anime podcast. Just who the hell do I think I am? I'm Ninja Boy, and I'm yet another anime podcast host. Hope everyone's doing well out there, and that if you're here in the States, you had a great Thanksgiving holiday, and I'm, this episode is so late, you almost you have a happy holidays coming up. Now, before we get into the book of the episode, I do have to acknowledge that there were news reports of attendees of Anime NYC who tested positive for the new Omicron variant of COVID. Fortunately, my wife and I not only had our booster shots, we also did a test afterwards and it turned up negative. And we've t- I've taken another test since then and been negative again. That said, you know, if you haven't checked out my episode, uh, you know, the most recent episode about Anime NYC or either of my YouTube videos covering the convention, be sure you go back and check those out. Anyway, again, apologies for this week's episode being later than expected. As I noted before, and you may be able to tell from the episode title, we're covering live action anime adaptations uh, of anime and manga with a special emphasis on Netflix Cowboy Bebop series, um, which I needed to finish before I could actually get to finishing this episode. Is it even possible to have a good anime adaptation uh, in live action? And if so, what are the secrets to doing so? Before we get into the idea of live action adaptations, though, I think we need to take a step back and just look at the idea of adaptations in general. If you think about it, as much as I enjoy live action anime adaptations, sometimes most anime uh, are based on some pre-existing work themselves, either a manga or a light novel, and so they themselves are, are adaptations. And not every anime adaptation of a pre-existing work is well done. If you've seen the 2016 Berserk, Tokyo Ghoul, God of High School, the second season of Promised Neverland, Record of Ragnarok, X-Arm, and many more, you'll know you may be better off just watching, just reading the original source material. Now, on the flip side, there are certainly anime adaptations that not only match, but surpass the original source material, the most famous of being stu- uh, recently Ufa Table uh, adapting Demon Slayer to turn it into the worldwide phenomenon it is. So why do live-action anime adaptations get a more critical eye than manga to anime adaptations? And why at the very least do live-action adaptations seem to not live up to the standards fan might have? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons here. First, first factor, the leap from manga page to screen isn't, as an anime, isn't usually as drastic at terms of, at least in terms of appearance, you know? Uh, oftentimes, manga can, and even light novels can serve, as story, uh, can serve as storyboards and provide character design already. For, I'd say, you know, 95% of anime adaptations, the page-to-screen transition is purely additive, right? You're adding in music, adding in voice acting, adding in motion, and adding in camera movement for the panel's that the panels on the screen can never replicate. The remaining five anime anime adaptations of manga and light novels that you know don't really work out, I think, are those that uh, have something very unique about the manga form that can't is hard to do in the like in the anime adaptation. Uh, recently, for example, Komi can't communicate. You know, not being able. This is more of a translation thing. Uh, but you know, Netflix not being able to translate all the text on screen really hurt that adaptation. Um, even though in Japanese, you know, this wouldn't be an issue. Um, you know, the aforementioned Berserk twenty. 16 or record of Ragnarok, you know, they're arguably the top 1% of detailed art of manga. As a result, though, those detailed character models are not as easily animated. It takes a lot of work, you know, when there are more lines on the character and detailed art, and so at least on a reasonable budget. And so, you know, this leads to either shortcuts being taken, such as CG animation, or choosing to keep the highly detailed models but eliminating the, you know, exciting Sakuga animation you'd expect from martial arts, so leading it to be considered subpar. I speculate the manga a manga that makes use of, you know, excellent use of, of paneling, for example, might also lose some of its impact on screen. Now, it's a case where the medium in which a story is decided for plays a role in how the impact of the story is delivered, and when you sift to a new medium, you need to maximize the strengths of that medium that could not otherwise exist in the original format more than what you lose of the strengths of the original format. 
Another example of this are live act, light novel isekai adaptations of anime that, that seem rather dull and generic. And, and the reason for this is that in the original light novel format, the author has as many words as they want to describe you know, the internal monologues of the characters, the emotions they're going through, and the intricacies and details of the world that they live in, You know, really getting into the nitty-gritty of the mechanics and systems. A 20-minute weekly episode and on a time crunch you know, in order to keep the pacing up, uh, a lot of world-building and fluff and internal monologue needs to be cut unless it's absolutely crucial to the story. Which is why High Long Horizon, one of my favorite anime ever, and later seasons of the Slime Isekai really rely on exposition, which might not be as exciting as the you know action sequences that you see on uh, on the page on on screen usually. So that's translating from you know the page manga to the screen anime, and in all the, but the most extreme cases, you know animation, frankly, right, is basically a series of drawings, which is basically what manga is. And you know, the strengths of the manga format are easily translatable to that format, with a lot of strengths being added. Now, on the flip side, you know, when transitioning from anime to live action, uh, there's a lot of stuff being traded off without a lot being gained, at least in my opinion. The biggest gains, you know, are physicality and facial emoting. You know, animation often strives to imitate the real world, and while there are some artists who are really good at it, there's nothing quite like seeing a well-trained actor or, uh, emote or delivering an in-person aspect that gives that sense of weight. You know, there's something about it being, you know, in 3D, so to speak, um, that really adds some, you know, weight, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, to the impact that you're seeing on screen. Uh, you know, however, you know, the, one of the strengths of animation is to provide a simulacrum of the real world that operates under its own rules and logic. And you know, that benefit of animation is lost when grounding something in the real world, and you can't have that suspension of disbelief. You know, live action shows that require some sort of CG element, such as a monster. You know, you need really talented VFX team to be sure you don't break immersion with accidentally going into the uncanny valley. Um, in animation, you can subtly change the background to reflect the inner emotions of a character, or craft worlds that have no right existing in the real world with as, as much detail as you want that a production st staff uh, otherwise would need to create the costumes and set for um, without as much detail just due to budget. Likewise, you know, stunt teams will never be able to fully compete against high-flying moves in anime where, you know, character models literally stretch and squash to just add more impact. You can't really do that with a live person, uh, an actual person. And then likewise, you know, dialogue that for some reason seems plausible coming out of a simulacrum of a human on screen, like a, a hand-drawn character, seems a bit cringier when, you know, a fully grown adult seems to be saying it uh, instead of an actual factual human, as an actual factual human. That's before we get into the whole anime hairstyles and colors for no reason beyond main character syndrome, right? Uh, there are just some hair designs that just wouldn't really work in real life, but in the world of an anime where you need to be able to identify the, the main protagonist, it makes sense. Now, what most live-action anime adaptations fail to realize is that trying to fully replicate what happened in the anime as it appeared in the anime seeks to try to replicate the strengths of the animation medium in live-action format. And in my opinion, those adaptations that get at the core of the franchise, that make it, what makes it tick, you know, the ethos, the pathos, the heart of that series, separate from the originating medium and instead lean to the strengths of what live-actions do best are the best successes here. Compounded onto this is the fact that, at least nowadays, you know, the format of Western adaptations are really the same as anime. You know, anime is usually 20-minute episodes, you know, maybe 13, maybe 26 episodes or so. Um, but in, in Western TV, we generally see fewer, longer episodes, right? So, you know, episodes that are an hour long, but you only have 10 episodes per season. Um, and then even singular feature film lengths, which, you know, uh, you know, two hour, trying to cram an entire story into two hours is no easy feat. And that makes pacing things out really tricky. All the problems I mentioned before, like, the isekai adaptations of the world building, you know, not being, you know, needing to be sewn and not tell instead of, you know, dictated out, that makes it even harder when trying to cram into two hours. 
Now, another point as to why live-action adaptations, I think, tend to receive extra scrutiny, not necessarily that they're actually bad or not, but that they just receive more scrutiny, uh, and they never live up to our expectations, is I think the nature of live-action adaptations, less about the, li- the nature of live-action adaptations and more about the nature of adapting a popular property. You're never going to please everyone with an adaptation. You know, On one hand, you're going to have a subset of fans who essentially want a shot-for-shot remake of the original source material, uh, similar to how for anime adaptations, source material readers want them to dive into all the nuances of world-building when, again, this format really, really will not allow for that. Now, on the other hand, you have potential new fans uh, who really don't know about the original source material and they want a self-contained story that they don't need to feel the need to go and watch 26 episodes of an, of an anime before they get this live action adaptation. They need to be something that they can drop in and enjoy without pre-existing convention, right? Um, and you may argue that, hey, you're able to do that if you do a software touch recreation of the original source material, but frankly, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia goggles being in there. And then between those two extremes, you know, people wanting a software shot remake and people who want a completely thing that's, that stands on its own, there are fans with various, wants different things from the different source materials, different things they prioritize, right? Some people may want the look, some people may want the writing, some people may want the characterization, some people may want, you know, the music, right? Some people may want the color, whatever is on there um, that they're not, that, that different things will have to be, different things will have to be prioritized and not everyone will be happy. And you're never going to really please everyone and I see adaptations that try to do too many things not do any of them particularly well. And furthermore, this dissatisfaction with a piece of media as an adaptation of some source material exists at all levels. But live action adaptations get it the worst because I think they're the last stops on the you know, on an adaptation train or a funnel uh, because it's one of the most expensive to pull off, right? It, it you know hiring a whole production team to build something up, you know, frankly speaking, is a lot more exp- expensive than building and paying a bunch of artists to draw the animation out. Um, and even that's even and that's more expensive than just drawing you know a single couple of artists to draw manga manga anime, right? So. Or, or and even more so than just one person doing the right the light novel writing, right? So as each adaptation goes up, you have to pay more people, and so you know in order to you know try to appeal to the broadest audience possible for that larger adaptation, you're never going to be able to have that singular vision of that singular artistic vision of what you want, right? Um, trying to cater to all these different audiences, um, even I don't have exact numbers with me, right? Right, and then you know the fact that there are more people, and then you know you the fact that there are more people expecting something, right? So you know. If you start with like a light novel, right, and gets adapted to a manga, frankly speaking, here in the West at least, not everyone has read that light novel. In fact, it's very unlikely they have just because unless it's been, even if it's been translated, it's still a very niche community. So, you know, light novel to manga adaptation, okay, there's a small group of core fans of the light novel who will see is it a good adaptation or not, but a lot of people will discover the source material, the the, the new story through the manga. And then from there, you know, then it gets an anime adaptation. And then more people either has to read watch anime here in the West and read manga. And as a result, right, like, you, ha- and then even then, how, what's the chances they read that specific manga, right? So again, there will be more people who are, you know, cr- cr- uh, scrutinizing the anime adaptation because, hey, this manga or light novel I like got an adaptation. Let's see if it lives up to what I hope for and and, and adds to it. Um, but then again, there will be a lot of anime-only people who watch only the anime and that's their entryway point into it. And then from there, the next step is from anime to live action, right? Be it Japanese or Western, um, and that will have the kind of like the largest funnel jump, basically. I guess you know one zone will be maybe from live a- from anime to Japanese live action, and then from Japanese live action to Western live action remake, right? And that's kind of like the bi- biggest audience possible. By that point, again, you have the kind of like the largest possible built-in fan base, uh, which again is how, how these series get adapted in the first place. You know, producers are looking for things with built-in fan bases that will guarantee that will hopefully guarantee them a return on the money they spend investing into developing the show 
But then again, you fall into all the problems of there's so many expectations because there's that many more people with expectations and gets a lot, and the discourse becomes a lot louder about it. Um, and you know that doesn't even uh, lead, lead, that not even touching any of the questions about cultural appropriation of adapting a Japanese work for a Western audience, and you know adapt it, and is it right to shift the story to try to you know appeal to a Western audience um, if there are maybe cultural specific notes, or is it you know something trying to keep it you know completely purely Japanese at that point, right? And that's a whole other kind of problem. So I'm not going to be trying to be touched here. All right, so you know that's kind of. A high overview of kind of like the reasons why live addicts annotations, if not you know, fail, right? Why they're, why they're not set up for success and why they're set up for having more scrutiny than you know other adaptation formats. Now, you know, the next part of the episode, I want to go over a brief history of live action anime and manga adaptations, both from the West and Japan. Uh, these are going to mostly focus on movies because I couldn't find a list online of uh, live action TV series adaptations, which again are mostly Japanese. Um, but you know, these are going to be mostly films. So the first live action anime manga adaptation I could find, according to Wikipedia, was Senen Buraku, or Hermit Village. Uh, the source material is the longest-running comic with a single artist in Japan, running from 1956 to 2014 in the adult magazine Weekly Asahi Geino. Uh, it actually is running lo ran longer than The Peanuts, though as a weekly comic it had few total entries. The story is a romantic comedy set in China, kind of lewd to some degree, um, kind of risque. Um, apparently it's one of the first late-night anime series, running from 1963 to 64 for 15-minute episodes. Um, but on the topic of this episode, it's also one of the earliest live-action anime or manga adaptations I can find with the movie predating the anime coming out in 1961. Uh, other early live-action adaptations at the time were Gonagai's erotic comedy, Havensi Gakuen, with four live-action films between 1970 and 71, and then six Lone Wolf and Cub movies from 72 to 74, based on a manga of the same name by writer Kazuo Koike and artist Kozeki Kojima, with an 81-episode live-action TV series running also from 1973 to 1976, and it's generally considered hugely influential, specifically on Western franchises like Frank Miller's Sin City, Ronin, and even Disney's The Mandalorian. Now, the first technically international uh, live-action adaptation was the 1973 Ten Kakakura-led film Gogo 13, uh, the longest-running manga still in publication today, actually, about an assassin. Uh, it started in uh, 1968 uh, by mangaka uh, Takao Saito, and the film was produced by a Japanese team, but the most supporting cast was Persian and was shot entirely in Iran. Um, there was a sequel also in 1977 that was shot in Hong Kong. Now, going down the list, there's a lot of entries on here. The first Western adaptation of manga or anime was the 1979 English-language French and Japanese co-production of Lady Oscar, based on the Ryoko Ikeda 1972 manga The Rose of Versailles, a historical sojo set during the French Revolution. Given the special relationship between France and Japan, this makes sense. wasn't the best received out there, but you know there was some credit to it uh, at the time of release. Now, the first solo solo Western a Western adaptation would be an American adaptation, and the first one of that. Uh, 1991, there was an adaptation of the 1985 manga Bio Booster Armor Giver by Yoshiki Takaya, uh, not to be confused with the popular television character MacGyver. Uh, it's about an alien artifact that turns the main character into an alien super soldier. Uh, fun fact, it features Mark Hamill, yes, Luke Skywalker Mark, Mark Hamill, as CIA agent Max Reed. Uh, despite mixed reviews, it also did well enough to get a sequel, Guyver Dark Hero, in 1994, which actually had more favorable ratings than the original due to a darker tone more close to the source material with an R rating. 
Now, I'll skip over most of the adaptations of the 80s and 90s, mostly because I don't have too much to say about them having not seen them myself or, you know, even having, I haven't even read the source material for most of them. Um, I will say from the list, it's mostly Japanese adaptations with the occasional Hong Kong martial arts film, such as 1985's Riki O, the, the story of Riki, which would go on to influence the Mortal Kombat video games due to its gory violence, or the comedy drama Mac the Knife in 1905, uh, based on the manga Dr. Kumahige that stars world-famous Tony Leung, whom you may have known as Wen Wu in, Mars, in Marvel's Shang-Chi. Uh, there was also a French-Canadian movie, Crying Freeman, based on the manga under the same name from 1994, about a hypnotized Japanese assassin who works for the Chinese triad. We also have the 1995 straight-to-video animes at American adaptation of Tetsuo's Hara's Fist of the North Star. Um, again, I cannot comment on it, having not seen it in its entirety if it's actually good or not, but the clips I've seen on YouTube, particularly of the famous Omae wo Shinderu scene, uh, I can say it's very 90s and very straight-to-DVD to put it in the nicest terms possible. Now, skipping forward to 2003, we have one of the best live-action anime and manga adaptations that, you know, arguably one of the best films ever, which many may not know is based on the manga, South Korea's Old Boy. Uh, that's right, the Park Chan-wook film that won the 2004 Cannes Film Festival is based on a manga of the same name, written by Garon Chuchia and illustrated by Nobuaki Minagishi of se for 79 chapters from 1996 to 98. Now, if you haven't seen Old Boy, just trust me. Uh, it's amazing and best to go in as blind as possible, though uh, I will say probably don't watch this one with your parents, or do, if that whatever your jam is. Um, but if anyone says all live-action anime adaptations are bad, uh, you can point to this one. Of course, that does mean that the Spike Lee adaptation a decade later that's not quite as good is also technically a manga adaptation as well, so you win some, you also lose some. Uh, other early uh, other early 2000s international anime and manga adaptations in the film include Initial D from Hong Kong uh, in 2005, marking the acting debut of Mando pop legend Jay Chow, uh, Chinese film A Battle of Wits in 2006, based on the manga Boko, and 2008 South Korean comedy thriller Antique, based on the manga Antique Bakery by Fumi Yoshinaga. Now, we also get to my, the first live-action anime adaptation that I personally saw, uh, at least chrono chronologically in terms of release. Um, 2006 saw an adaptation of the legendary supernatural thriller anime and manga Death Note by Tsugimi Oba and Takeshi Obada. Now, granted, it's been a few years since I've seen this one, but, you know, actually, did you know there were, like, three sequels to this one? Uh, this one and the next sequel, Death Note 2, the last name, also in 2006, they tend to do that, actually, have a two-part movie series um, releasing within the same year. They filmed them back-to-back, Anyway, these two films cover essentially the first better half of the anime and manga uh, and pretty much end there without a follow-up. Um, I actually think I actually watched these on a trans-Pacific flight, you know, between the U.S. and, and Asia when I was visiting at some point. Um, and, you know, with it having been longer since I read Death Note straight through, I can't say it's entirely the most loyal of adaptations, but it does generally hit a lot of the same plot points, adapted, of course, for half the total runtime. It helps out aside from Ryuk and the other Shinigami, Death Note isn't a particularly fantastical series. Um, being more more about uh, human psychology, helping it appear more grounded and a better fit for live-action media. In fact, my wife, who hasn't seen the original Death Note anime, rather likes these. Now, we'll skip over some of the Western adaptations around this time. We'll talk about them in a little bit, but the number of live Japanese live-action adaptations only really accelerate in the 2010s and beyond as we become a more and more content-hungry society. Uh, 2010 sees a two-part live-action Gantz adaptation, which I'm pretty sure I have seen at least the first one, maybe the second also, courtesy of my wife. Uh, there's a rom-com from South Korea in 2011 based on the 2000 Jose manga uh, Tramps Like Us. Uh, there's a two-part adaptation of the sci-fi manga Parasite in 2014 
2014 and 2015, around the same time the anime comes out, actually. Uh, there's a well-received two-part adaptation of Assassination Classroom in 2015-2016, which somehow worked despite the yellow giant uh, CG Koro-sensei. Um, and on, on the flip side of quality, you know, I've actually seen the live-action adaptation of Attack on Titan, which was two parts, also in 2015. Uh, obvious, this was, obviously, this was before the conclusion of the manga, so it's a movie original ending, but the characterizations, the plot are just really deviated so hard from the original, and a lot of the subtlety and foreshadowing that made the original manga great was really lost here. Would not recommend. Uh, other adaptations from Japan I've seen include the 2015 adaptation of Bakuman, uh, 2016's Wolf Girl, and Black Prince television series. I think both of these on the plane of Asia. Uh, there's a 2017 Full Metal Alchemist live-action movie, which was pretty hammy, uh, trying to condense a very stylistic anime into a lot with a long line plot into two hours did not work. Uh, you can see for yourself on Netflix, but really would not recommend. Uh, 2017's Gintama, which somehow worked as a bit of absurdist comedy, frankly speaking. Uh, 2018's Bleach, which is on Netflix, which honestly wasn't a bad ad adaptation of those first couple arcs of the manga. And then while I haven't seen these, my wife, who again is comes from a non-anime, non-manga background, uh, she really enjoyed watching 2015's uh, teen drama movie Orange, 2015's uh, Anohana, uh, 2016's Erased, and 2016's romance Good Morning Call based on a 1997 Sojo manga. Uh, she even cosplayed one of those characters from Good Morning Call at her first anime NYC convention. Um, she also watched 2017's Tokyo Ghoul, 2017's Asahinagu, and the 2020 adaptation on Netflix of Alice in Borderland, which uh, is unlike Cowboy Bebop, uh, was pretty well received and has a second season already confirmed. Now again, there are a ton of anime adaptations, and those are just some that my wife or I or both of us have seen. Um, I'll just rattle off some other series that have adaptations, either film or television series from Japan in no particular order. I can't promise the quality of these, but these do exist out there. Uh, Your Lie in April, Tokyo Avengers, City Hunter, Promised Neverland, Prison School, Kakegurui, Blood the Last Vampire, Prince of Tennis, Switched, uh, Devilman, uh, Mob Psycho 100, Sailor Moon, Tonari no Seki-kun, or in High School Host Club, Mirai Nikki, Gegege no Kitaro, and Black Butler. Now, again, you'll notice I skipped over those anime adaptations from the West about 20, 2009 or so. That's because the reputation of anime adaptations in the West really started to decline around this period. Uh, first, we have 2008's adaptation of Speed Race by the Wachowski siblings, uh, which had been in development hell since 1992. Initially, you know, the release was kind of panned, uh, but it, over time has gained a bit of a cult following. Uh, no one can really blame the Wachowskis for not getting anime uh, properly. I mean, they basically took, you know, Ghost in the Cell, um, and use that as their pits for the Matrix 999. They were like, hey, this, we want to do this live action. I think part of it was that the market for anime in the West was, wasn't as mainstream at the time, and the consensus was that the Wachowski's interpretation, um, you know, and emphasized the visual effects a little bit more than the story and characterization. And then 2009 saw the disaster that is the live action Dragon Ball adaptation, Dragon Ball Evolution. Fortunately, never seen it, never hoped to, but by all accounts, it was terrible, mostly due to how far it deviated from the source material, not to mention, again, the whitewashing of Goku, which has been a constant struggle um, only up until recently when it came to anime adaptations. Uh, combine that with a not quite not quite anime, but close enough, I'm basically calling it anime, Avatar The Last Airbender, getting a horrible adaptation by M. Night Shyamalan in 2010. Uh, there is no live-action anime av uh, Avatar movie in Ba Sing Se. Um, those are the first impressions of anime live-action adaptations, kind of tainted 
stupid concept up until this very day, frankly speaking. Uh, this was only reinforced by Netflix's similarly whitewashed adaptation of Death Note in 20, 2017 and Scarlett Johansson-led uh, Ghost in the Cell in the same year. And again, I haven't seen those myself, but I literally have zero interest in doing so at this point, even for the podcast. That said, I think part of the issue with Evolution and uh, Airbender was that, again, the source, source material was super wildly popular in the West, going back to that problem I mentioned before. If this is such a strong potential built-in fan base, uh, a lot of expectations put on the film, it's never going to live up to it, uh, trying to be both unique for a wider non-anime audience while also catering to the original fans. On the flip side, though, you know, what if there was a film based on an anime or manga, but it didn't have that big of fandom uh, to raise a ruckus? Well, a case like this would be The Edge of Tomorrow, or Live Die Repeat, however they, they're marketing it, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. Uh, the 2014 Warner Brothers film is technically based off a 2004 Japanese sci-fi novel titled Live Die Repeat, uh, with a manga adaptation coming out just before the live action release. I think a big part of where Edge of Tomorrow gets a pass that the other adaptations did not is one, obviously it was quality, um, but also two is the fact that preconceived notions of what the source material should or where the adaptation shouldn't, shouldn't be based on the source material um, simply wasn't present in the mainstream. Like everyone knew Dragon Ball, right? Everyone or a lot of people knew about Avatar The Last Airbender. It's not like, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know the 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 live die repeat uh you know science fiction novel had like the hugest fan base here in the West um and you know again there, so there were simply no preconceived notions about what it should be and you could just get more engrossed in the work instead of trying to constantly think in the back of your head okay is this a good adaptation is this a good adaptation um and you know the filmmakers also don't necessarily have to be as precious with trying to make clever allusions to the crowd you know another Western adaptation release like this was Alita Battle Angel directed by Robert Rodriguez and produced by James Cameron as his passion project well. You know, Alita did unfortunately get caught up in a bit of a culture war around the time. You know, I had never read the original 1990 manga or the 1993 OVA. I'm sorry, you know, there are lots of people who have. But again, I don't think on the scale of Avatar or Dragon Ball um, or even Cowboy Bebop. And so, you know, I think most of us who saw it, who, like, frankly, kind of enjoyed it. You know, so there are parts that scream that there's more to be adapted and they hope they get greenlit and it's not fully self-contained. But that's also just the nature of Hollywood adaptations again. Um, everyone's looking for the next franchise. So, you know, to close out this segment, you know, I, I want to talk this episode, I want to talk about the Cowboy Live Action. Uh, before I talk about the, to close this segment, talking about the Live Action Cowboy Bebop adaptation specifically, I want to mention two of my favorite adaptations, both of which come from Japan. Uh, first is Rony Kenshin. Now, this is based on the Weekly Sword and Jump Samurai period series from the 90s. Uh, it has evolved into a five-part film series with the most two recent films last uh, this past year, 2021, coming out on Netflix here in the West, uh, basically covering the entirety of the original manga's run, uh, the first movie focusing on the pre-Kyoto arcs, the next two focusing on Kyoto and Sisio, and the most recent two, the final arc. Obviously, it's not a one-to-one adaptation, but having again, having been years since I'd seen the original manga back in high school, it was a waste of nostalgia to watch this. And more importantly, you know, it doesn't have any of the hokiness you see uh, in Japanese acting. I'm not saying Japanese acting is bad; it's just that I think what the Japanese actor is considered great acting isn't always the same as here in the West. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, the emoting really felt more nuanced for my Western sensibilities here. What also helps is that while certainly there are near superhuman physical feats in the manga, at the end of the day, Rurouni Kenshin is a chambara or samurai film, which Japan has a long history of making many of those, and they know how to make that genre um, and how to make it well. 
you know, bar none, I think Roni Kenshin live action series is my favorite anime adaptation to date, or live action anime adaptation to date. Uh, in fact, part of the reason this episode is also delayed is I was hoping uh, to be able to watch those films before recording this, but life got in the way. So we'll have to hopefully revisit those in the not too distant future. Uh, the other live action adaptation I wanted to highlight isn't actually a singular film, but rather the, a singular director. Uh, Takashi Miike doesn't exclusively do anime and manga adaptations, but he does a lot of them. I first came across him in 2017 when his adaptation of the manga Blade of the Immortals came out here in the States. At the time, I hadn't and still haven't uh, read Blade of the Immortals, but I was so curious what kind of madman directs 100 films in his lifetime, which is how it was being marketed. As a point of comparison, Alfred Hitchcock was notoriously prolific, but he only directed 54 films in his lifetime. Again, not having read the source material, I can't say if it was a good adaptation or not, but as a standalone film, it was oozing with style, and, you know, Takazi Miki's works have famously been hit or miss. Um, this one definitely was a hit for me, and he definitely has style that he's going for. He has some other crazy adaptations that, by reputation, don't seem to fall flat on their face. Um, most notably, he adapted a live-action Jojo's Bizarre Adventure the same year as Blade of the Immortals, as well as an Ace Attorney adaptation in 2012, and Terraformers in 2016, Yaderman in 2009, and goes all the way back to 1992 with his first adaptation of a manga called A Human Murder Weapon. Again, from what I've seen of his clips and, and trailers, he's kind of unafraid to go full anime with his adaptation of authenticity, uh, which I can appreciate and kind of, again, leans into, you know, just be what, what, it, what have a vision for it wants to be, singular vision, um, as opposed to trying to cater to many crowds at once. Uh, which transitions us nicely to the last part of this episode. The reason I wanted to do an episode on live action adaptations in the first place, Netflix's Cowboy Bebop live adaptation, which aired again last month. Again, this episode is late because I needed actually to finish up uh, the series in addition to work and holiday plans getting busy. Um, and then, you know, the other part is I wanted to, I, it was hard to kind of consolidate my thoughts down, right? Uh, if you've seen the news, obviously, and I'm way late on this, but, you know, surprise, the series was canceled after this first season, despite showing up in Netflix's top 10 at some point. Um, if you've been paying attention to the online discourse at all, general consensus seems to be if you don't know about Cowboy Bebop going into this, you know, you'll like it as its own thing. Those who are familiar with the source material are more disappointed, mostly at the, like, the lost potential. Now, there are lots of reactions and dissections out there where they went wrong, um, in particular, I, I would recommend checking out Mother's Basement's video as well as Glass Reflections. Um, both of them have a lot to say of before what it came out, what they hoped it would be, and then secondly, uh, what their, their post-mortem assessment was. Now, for me personally, the conception of what Cowboy Bebop, the animated TV series, was, I'm going back to my nearly 10-year-old memories of watching it while in college. I haven't had a chance to go back and revisit the original, which I'm probably overdue for. But I think that's actually to the benefit, since what sticks in my mind when I'm thinking about this isn't all the mini little details, but really what gives me the strongest impression that still sticks with me all these years later. I remember so that for the most part was in the medium that for a show that's in the medium that's often serialized over multiple episodes, really was mostly filler by most people's definition. You know, standalone episodes that don't impact a lot a large central plot. Um, it's just really a nice way to get to know these characters and their viewpoints, right? You know, Spike, Jet, Faye, Ed, they have misadventures, trying and often failing to get bounties, but along the way, we the audience, you know, get a viewpoint into a worldview and philosophy on how to live life. Part of why I'm due for rewatches, I think the lessons I took away when I was 20 probably are different now than the lessons I'm getting when I'm about to turn 30. But the impression of the feeling I got from Cowboy Bebop is one of melancholy at loss in the past with broken souls of the Bebop crew and their experience and the implication that despite that 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 loss, life moves on. You're going to have to carry that weight. You know, what happens happens and all that. So a little bit of Bushido and Jeet Kune Do philosophy as well for good measure. 
Now, what live action adaptation lost me is the very Western notion that television series has to be that, a series, a sequential order of, of episodes with a narrative through line of, with, a, you know, with one episode impacting the next, impacting the next, as opposed to just letting it be anthology-like, um, which is really how I see the best of Cowboy Bebop. You know, that, that stretch of episodes in the middle where there was mostly one-off jobs that challenged the crew to face their past demons were my favorites, whereas all the stuff related to Vicious and Julia and the machinations of the syndicate just were not. Great. Uh, admittedly, I don't remember the Vicious and Julia episodes from the original anime all that much. Um, but you know, uh, again, my again, my favorites were the quote unquote filler. But I do know that they're p- part of the power they had over the plot there was that they were these monolithic unexplained entities to some degree in Spike's life that would kind of show up as a reminder. You know, the fact that the curtain of mystery was pulled back in the live action and, you know, the less impressive they seem when you kind of pull back and shine a light on all the inner workings. It didn't help also that they look like Targaryen sibling knockoffs from the first season of Game of Thrones or that the mafia politics subplot present in every episode was just super generic and bland compared to the rest of the, the worldview of, of Cowboy Bebop trying to be taught. Now, the crew of the Bebop were, I think, a little bit better off than Vicious and Julia. I'm with the general consensus that Mustafa Sakir is kind of the definitive Jet Black, and John Cho pulls off a pretty good Spike Spiegel with pretty similar vibes and banter between the two to their original versions. Even the addition of Jet as a absentee father was a nice characterization, if different, uh, though I think his characterization of, of being clueless about Spike's background and reacting poorly for some reason really rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe it's because I feel like from the anime, Spike, Jet and Spike were past that at this point and he kind of knew each other. Um, though that, that's maybe me misremembering. Um, as far as Faye, I don't want to say I dislike her character because of her looks or appearance. Um, the realistic necessities of live action stunt work kind of preclude what you can do in animation and costume design and that fa- that's fine. I don't think I was ever fully convinced, though, about her mindset or her approach to her post-cryo amnesia. Uh, you know, the anime Faye felt like a tragic character who was, you know, using her bounty hunting and her vices to fill that void in her life and run away from the past, even though you know, she could never fully outrun it, um, and harboring that pain deep down inside. You know, and the more I think about the live action Faye, you know, I could see... Uh, maybe a hint of that, but the approach of trying to be more wisecracking, one-liner, Joss Whedon-slinging, girl boss, didn't feel like it had as much weight for me. Which I think is one of the larger issues of the series overall, just the writing. You know, YouTubers I mentioned got into more depth into this, but some of the banter moments or when they were actually bounding hunting were my favorite parts of the show. When they were trying to get serious emotionally, though, or move that overarching plot along, or God forbid some real cringe line like that blackmail one, it really fell flat. Uh, I think this stems again from the format of Western serialized binge television on Netflix, not matching the original format. You know, the original episodes were 20 ish minutes or so, and here we have episodes at about 40 to 50 minutes or so. And, you know, we have fewer episodes here, that half as many episodes here than we had in the original. So we have fewer stories in general to flesh out our characters. Yes, we have more time in each episode, but you know, one that makes the the the, the pacing of the of the dialogue, you know, kind of be more stretched out and not be as quick and quick and snappy. And then two, that longer period there is kind of filled in not with more characterization of the characters, but more of that dull, you know, boring, cringy uh, mafia plot. Um, you know that. That, that that's taking up the time. So, you know, we got fewer stories total. We got a bit sloppier writing. It, it was, they were never going to be able to characterize them in the same way in this particular format, much less if they were trying to do it in a TV, in a movie's format. Now, hopefully that idea makes sense. Uh, not to mention, you know, the need to end the show on a cliffhanger for a second season. We never really get, uh, we're never going to get, means that we, we were setting up plot lines that you'll never get resolved, leading to an unsatisfying conclusion. I think 
maybe if they had ended the series on a kind of a, on a somewhat final note, leaving it open to maybe more bounties in the future, um, but you know, not really setting it up like this, um, you know, I think that would made it, made the reception a little bit better. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about Ed at all because you know that's just like a, a weird character, and it's only two minutes, so that doesn't really impact this. Now, to the show's credit, I think what it did well it did play to the strengths of the TV for live action format. You know, they created a, uh, as best as they could a world we could really imagine from the pay from from uh, from the screen. Um, you know, really get that sense of that 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 post apocalyptic you know world and outer space and you know being on colonies and kind of rough and rumble. Um, sure, it's not exactly what we saw in the anime, but again, you know, you, it's hard to do that unless you go full Lord of the Rings with it. But definitely up in production quality. Uh, in particular, the episode where Spike I think went into the, his own mind and they started messing around with his memories. The way they edited those to look like a bit of an acid trip felt super creative and evocative. Uh, you do get a sense of the diversity of the world, and again, in a post travel that that post space travel human society. And of course, it goes without saying that Yoko Kano's music was top-notch in here as it was in the original. Now, what would I have liked to see from the show? You know, I think if I were to try to be a doctor for the series, scrap the Vicious and Julia plotline, or at least minimize it, have it not be the main narrative engine for the show, right? You know, drops hints here and there, perhaps about the final conflict for the season. But, you know, I'd love to see almost an anthology type of series where the crew takes on different bounties to varying degrees of success, but all with some sort of life lesson, right? So some of them you can create, recreate classic bounties from the original anime, but I'd love to see, you know, some brand new tales that speak to the condition of the world we find ourselves in now. Not just the world of Bebop, but our current world now uh, in the real world. After all, you know, science fiction like Cowboy Bebop are really meant to be commentary on the present day in a way that you know that that kind of masks that in some degree, and the original anime was that, so I feel like this one should be as well. At that point, you know, you've got this a series that could go on ad infinitum. You know, there are always more bounties to find and lessons to learn. Now, again, this is all from the perspective of somebody who's been seen and appreciates the original Cowboy Bebop. So again, there's that implicit, you know, never going to be gone from the back of my head a comparison of, you know, is this what I imagined the live action version to be like all those years ago? And you know. And and that's not maybe that's not fully fair to the series, right? Again, the consensus is if you haven't seen it, it's fine. Maybe not the greatest television out there, but it's certainly you know serviceable enough for someone who's never seen Bebop. And all the disappointment I feel comes from people who did have an expectation for what it could be. Aside from the messiness of Vicious and Juliet, that is not salvageable. But everything else, you know, the 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 other loser cowboys, and they still have charisma. And there's a good show in here somewhere, I think. Maybe it's not fair to try to expect it to be something it's not. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's trying to serve again too many masters at once, be an homage to the original show while being its own thing. And I think in the future to try to fix this, choose one or the other. Be your own Cowboy Bebop inspired show, right? Or try to go in and lean like Takashi Miki into being a more faithful adaptation. Now, that being said, would I recommend it to like, Howard Bebop live action to somebody else? You know, if they had seen the original, probably not. I would just say go back and rewatch that. They're just going to be frustrated. But for someone who hadn't seen the original and liked science fiction, I think they could find enjoyment in it. At the end of the day, you know, if this also pushes somebody to go back and watch the original anime that they never had before, I can't really knock the series too much. Now, of course, the conversation is something I think we're going to have years into the future about live action adaptations. Many projects, including some from Netflix, are in the pipeline. Um, many of which I mean, some of which I'm excited for, some of which I'm not. Um, just to go through them, you know, you have One Piece, which I think is a Netflix one. Uh, you have Naruto getting a live action. Netflix said they're going to do a Yu Yu Hakusho live action. Uh, Taika Waititi at one point was attached to Akira. Um, those I'm all somewhat tentatively excited for. Uh, then there's a J.J. Abrams remake of Your Name, which I think is kind of unnecessary at this point. Um, and then for the Filipinos out there, uh, they're making a live action Voltus Five Legacy series, which. 
Okay, um, yeah, that's definitely going to be really interesting, especially since I have a lot of memories of Oldest Five as growing up as a kid, even if I had never actually remember understanding any of it. Now, whatever the case, you know, while Cowboy Bebop live action may not be this so for me, it's not as though we don't have the original still, right? And I think that's the most important thing in this conversation. Just because a live action adaptation exists and maybe it didn't live up to your expectations, that does not make it, that does not take away, I think, from your experience and your enjoyment of the original. If anything, maybe it'll help you appreciate the, the original more. Sir, there's always going to be disappointment what could have been, wasted potential. But at the very least, you know, it's not as bad as Dragon Ball Evolution. And, you know, hey, if it takes getting some of these live action remakes, you know, both Western and Japanese, to get things like Old Boy with Rodney Kenson or Edge of Tomorrow, hey, maybe this is a controversial opinion, but it's not the race in the original form, so why not? You know, the existence of M. Night Samurai's last Airbender doesn't take away from the original Avatar. In any case, I think that's wrap for this episode. Again, apologies for the delays. I'm doing my best in the meantime uh, for the rest of the year to watch what I'm very behind on this season. Um, I'll do my best to get my yet another anime award show up at some point, maybe before the end of the year. Maybe it'll be you know in the new year. Um, but there's a real possibility it gets rolled into the first episode of 2022. In the meantime, though, you know, hope you guys have a happy holidays. Stay safe. Stay positive. Uh, test negative. Um, before I go, you know, it's a question for you. You know, what are your thoughts of the live action anime adaptations? Are they ever any good? Any specific thoughts on the Pop Cowboy Bebop live action? Any credit that you want to give it, even if you were disappointed? Um, any anime you'd be hoping to see in live action, assuming that they're really good? Uh, you can let me know on Twitter at yetanimepod or via email at yetanotheanimepodcast at gmail.com. Follow my, my anime list at ninzaboy333, boy with an eye. We're found on all the major podcast services, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, share with another anime-loving friend. Uh, support the show on Patreon. Links to all of that will be in the show notes. Intro and outro music provided by Ninja Boy, or by Suichi Sakagami at Tendas.com. In editing production by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this episode. We air on the first and third Fridays of each month. Uh, next time we get another anime podcast, like I said, hopefully we'll get the yet another anime podcast uh, award so up um if not it'll be the uh review of the winter 20 or the fall 2021 anime season and and it'll be rolled into that but until then see you space cowboy